Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, Cycling in Alignment listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode, or me rather. Well, as I've said in the past, I'm like a double Gemini, so there's probably four of me in my skull, and you're here to hear us talk to Travis McCabe. Travis is a professional cyclist and also a member of the Team EF coaching platform. This means if you sign up on teamefcoaching.com, you can request Travis to be your coach. Want to know more? Find out about his philosophies and his journey through the sport of cycling in our discussion. He'll tell you about some of his mentors and coaches that he's learned from along his own path. I find this conversation quite insightful. It always helps me to figure out the origin of an athlete and to analyze, discuss, percolate on the origins of their thinking and method of operations. This helps me refine my own process and also understand more about them as a person. If you have feedback on this episode, please feel free to drop us a note on Instagram. You can leave a question for me on the Cycling and Alignment Instagram page, or you can reach out to Travis directly to figure out where to reach him. You got to listen to the episode, and at the end, he gives you all those bits of information. Please enjoy the episode with Travis McCabe. Thanks for listening. Travis McCabe, welcome to Cycling in Alignment. Thanks for making time today to come on board, man. Yeah, thanks, Colby. Excited yeah. to be here. Cool, cool. So I want to unpack a bunch of things today about you as a rider and your history in the sport and how you came to decide to be a cycling coach and your new role at Team EF Coaching. So yeah, excited for all this stuff. Let's dive in. You know, you and I were just talking uh, before the show started a bit about coaching philosophy a little bit, you got into it because you mentioned basically that you feel like one of your maybe core philosophies, I'll say, I'll I'll just put the words in your mouth for the moment is to teach someone how to fish rather than hand them a a plate of salmon, right? So in the world of nutrition specifically, that applies, but maybe we can unpack kind of your thoughts on that as far as teaching athletes. What, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? What are your philosophies on that? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, I've, I've always had a coach. I've always like had someone who's mentored me even at a young age, just from playing soccer to running to transitioning into cycling. I think there's, I've always had someone, I've had a few mentors. I've had like the coach and then I've had like the mentor and Mm -hmm. it's has kind of evolved now into my coaches, my mentor. Um, but I think the really, the, the, the important thing with that is that I've always had people to ask questions for or to ask questions to, and who've like guided me in the right direction and have taught me how to fish instead of just giving me the fish to cook myself. Um, I do always think that you need someone else there to just like kind of be watching you and making sure that you're doing everything properly, which Mm -hmm. is huge. But I think the, the core philosophy that I have is like, yeah, teach someone how to fish, teach them how to actually use the concepts and the, um, ideals behind the sport and put that into practice instead of just telling them this is how you do it like you teach them how to do it you know i think especially with cycling and the way it is right now 
with so many people coming into the sport of cycling through this pandemic. So many people are riding now, but they don't understand the course concepts or philosophies behind just basic mobility and movements of the sport itself. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to sit down with someone and guide them through it and, you know, have them ask as many questions as possible and then explain to them why you want to do X, Y, and Z and why it's important. Yeah. Uh, and I think that goes even from an elementary level all the way up to an export expert opinion and level within the sport. Like there's always something that the coach learns that I'm finding out. It's always something that I'm learning and it's always something that I can teach you. So it's a very, you know, it, it evolves in both ways that there's always something to learn. And I think if people start to actually comprehend what we're telling them and teaching them, then it's easier to practice that in everyday life. And that goes for everything like nutrition, exercise, mobility, working out with strength, um, just the mental aspect of it too, like being able to visualize what you want to do and where you want to go with everything, setting goals, Mm -hmm. uh, creating structure that you can turn into a habit that you're doing constantly. I think that's a really big part of it. And um, yeah, there's just so many little little things that are part of the umbrella of coaching uh, that you have to really teach people how to do because a lot of people don't know even the basics or they have an idea of certain spots there's certain ideas and parts of the sport but they don't know it's it's easy it's hard i think to zoom out it's easy to zoom in and focus on a few things but it's hard to actually look at the big picture and be able to look at everything so i think that's kind of more of my philosophy it's again just teach people and help them understand and grow because otherwise it's just you can feed them information you can't really teach a horse to drink, but you can shove its head in the water. I forget what that saying is. <laughs> Gently lead him to the river. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, uh, you know, it's so easy for people, humans, to kind of get trapped in our own skulls, so to speak, right? And focus. The analogy I use is, you know, you're, you're walking through the forest and all you see is a tree and a bush and a tree and a bush. And, and the coach's job is to help that athlete zoom out and really see the big picture and see the progress they've made. But also it's such an important lesson to keep the athlete's eye on the long game. Like cycling is a sport about, it's about durability both on the day, right? But it's also about durability over months, weeks, months. That's how you make progress. And so we simply have to constantly refocus and reframe the athlete to zoom out and look and say, when they get frustrated, they have a single bad workout, you know, maybe a day you give them intervals or efforts and they can't execute or their, their output's really bad. Or maybe they just couldn't even get on the bike that day because they were, you know, had a work emergency or had to take their kid to the dentist at the last minute or whatever life things happen. And they're frustrated. They feel like they've lost progress. It's like, okay, let's take a minute to zoom out here and reassure the athlete a single day isn't really going to make or break someone's program. It's about repeatability and work over time. So Let's just reorganize things and let's see where we can fit in some good work this week, later in the week. We'll, we'll reshuffle workouts if we need to, but you're going to be okay in the big picture as long as you're consistently getting the work in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that's something that I learned earlier on. It's like I, I don't know, I contribute a lot of the success that I've had in the sport to when I first started. I remember I would, I think, I forget who told me, but. I, my coach or one of my friends told me like, write down 
what you want this month, write down what you want this year, and Mm -hmm. then write down what you want five years from now. Mm -hmm. And so I always did that. I would write down like, okay, these are my, these are my goals for the month. I want to, you know, train consistently. I don't want to miss a day. I want to make sure that I'm stretching and focusing on other aspects of the sport other than just the time on the bike. And then I'm like, these are the goals. Like I want to win, you know, I want my, I want to get the first, I remember I was like, I want to have my first NRC win. I want to have my first win in the crit. I want to win amateur nationals in the criterium, stuff like that. And then I could easily look at like what I was doing month by month and be like, all right, am I checking all of these boxes? Because if I check all these boxes, then I'm going to be able to check off the bigger picture goals in that one year. And then I did that again for the five years. And then I was like, all right, in five years, I want to, you know, the, the goal is like, I want to race at the world tour level. So in five years, that's what I want to do. I want to be as good as I can be and be one of the top sprinters in the U.S. And so it was easier to check off boxes when I, again, zoomed in and then zoomed out and looked at like what I was doing a month, a year, and five years. And mm-hmm. I think that's really important because then when shit didn't go right, then I was stressing about it. Then I could go back and look at it or my coach would be like, hey, that's not, let's not dwell on this moment. Let's like keep the progression going and work mm-hmm. towards what you're doing right now so you can get those goals. And yeah, I find that, I found that really beneficial. And then also I'd always write, I remember I'd always write down, uh, I do like a little race journal. So I'd like write down what I did right, what I did wrong throughout the race Mm -hmm. and then replay everything. So I knew like, all right, well, I'm not eating enough or I'm too aggressive early on. I need to calm down Mm -hmm. and learn like what I was doing wrong. Cause then I could go back and see, is this something that's cyclical? Am I making the same mistakes over and over again? Or am I slowly learning and progressing throughout it? So I always recommend people to still do that and just, you know, I have my clients write down that one year, five year, mm-hmm. uh, one month goal plan so that it's easier for us to hit the targets. And you have, you know, little wins turn into big wins, I think. So uh, that's a, those are great points. That makes me think of two things, two other questions I want to ask you. One is, Okay, you've raced on some really high-level teams, right? You raced for Smart Stop, Mountain Khakis, Holowesco, United Healthcare for a couple of years, and then you rode for Israeli Startup Nation. So you achieved a very high level in the sport in terms of the team support you had and the structure, the infrastructure, and racing at the World Tour level. How do you think an athlete can strike the balance in writing those goals? Like you mentioned writing your goals down for this week, this month, a year, five years from now. And that's a great plan. I've also done that as a young rider. I did that a lot, but I think that's a little, that can be a little tricky. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea of how does an athlete know what a goal is that's going to push their envelope and something that they can achieve, that's going to be the apogee of their capacity versus something that's completely delusional, right? I mean, you didn't write down win the tour, did you? So how do you know, how, how, how did you Travis know, kind of have that instinct for, okay, I know this is going to be the highest point where I can make it. And it's something that's achievable. If I have, if I'm riding with, with coherence, if I'm riding with that alignment, that, that focus versus something that's just like on the moon. Right. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, what I did is I didn't focus. So I'd focus in on specific wins that I'd want. Like that was like the ultimate goal. I was like, I want to win an NRC race. I don't know what NRC race I want to win, but okay. I want to win an NRC race. And this is going back to 2013 when I was on elbows before I was like, as I was making that progression up, 
Okay. I was like, I want to win an NRC race. And I would prioritize goals. So I think it's easy for people to look at like one goal and be like, all right, I have to win the NR in NRC race. And if I don't do that, then I fail. Well, yep. my second goal was like, all right, well, I want a podium. Like if I can't win a race, I want to see if I can podium. And then my third goal was like, all right, I just want to like make sure that I'm progressing. So I would always sit down and write just, I'd spend, I'd spend an hour just writing down like at the beginning of the year, what I wanted out of the season. So I would just write down like, you know, where I'm at, where I was at, what I wanted, you know, I wanted to win an NRC race. I wanted to make it, I wanted to sign on to a pro team and I wanted to, you know, get better. And so I think it's easier when you set like different priorities and different levels, because sometimes you don't always hit that goal. Like I had that goal to go to the world tour in five years and that didn't happen. It took 10 years to do, but I still always saw small successes within each goal that I had. And I didn't just have like one big goal. I think a lot of guys, especially when you're like, I saw it so much with friends who would come down to Tucson and train and they'd spend a year or two down there and they'd be like, you know, <laughs> I remember my roommate. He, when I first came down to Tucson, uh, I was like a cat too. I just started racing and I was like, I want to make this, I want to see how far I can go. I want to see if I can actually make a career out of this. Mm-hmm. And so I moved into like the small little cycling house that was uh, owned by this guy, Justin Hale, who had left and just cyclists were just renting it. It was 250 a month to rent a room. And it was like, you had three other cyclists. So you always had people to train with and friends who had that same philosophy. I remember one teammate, he was like two years older than me. He was like, if I don't go work, if I don't go pro by uh, 22, then I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm done. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna try anymore and I just quit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, dude, like, to me, that was like an unrealistic goal. I'm like, well, if that's your goal, you're never going to accomplish it. And if you do accomplish it, then you're still not going to be happy because now your whole identity is just being pro. It's not actually improving. You're like, oh, I hit my goal and that's what it is. So I'm good where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do it. And sure enough, he quit and moved back to California and quit riding. And I was just like, well, mm-hmm. I always saw that interesting because for me, that was the complete opposite of what I was trying to do. I was just trying to like, I wanted to win and it didn't really matter at what level, but I wanted to win and continue to improve and see how far I could push myself, not just say that I was a pro cyclist because it's great, but realistically, like most of us are hardly pro. We're like scraping by every year, just trying to survive and figure out how to do it the next year. Like, it's just a label. A profession. Yeah. It's a label. label it's right? not a profession. Yeah. Right. And it's, it doesn't reflect the passion that you have for the sport. Right. That, that's, that's a great good. point. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, we've all dealt with doping in our sport, right? And this reminds me of that kind of how people handle that equation. I had a many racing colleagues and peers who were just so endlessly frustrated by the concept of doping and the fact that like they knew certain riders were doping and that they were just, you know, air quotes, getting away with it. They knew people were on the sauce and they weren't getting, they weren't testing positive and it was just endlessly frustrating to them. And and while there's a part of me for sure that agrees that that just sucks and that that's part of the sport that we have to live with, I also always felt that that was never going to rob me of my joy of the sport. I wasn't going to let it soil or or darken my joy for riding my bike because other people chose to cheat 
or take a shortcut or do whatever their own equation is like that's kind of irrelevant to me and my passion for the sport right and so it sounds like you in a similar sense you kind of pour your your you poured your love and your your desire into that sport your expression of joy into that sport and kind of you had some goals but they but your entire we'll say judgment of whether you were a failure or success as a cyclist wasn't contingent on reaching some level like you said being world tour by the age of 22 or winning a certain race at this season or in this month or whatever if you didn't achieve that goal you could see that that was just an external goal right an external label or a benchmark that realistically we don't have that much control over right i mean you can show up to national criterium championships have had eight months of perfect execution literally gone to bed at 9 59 every single night you know drank 150 ounces of water a day done checked every single box off you can show up in the best form of your life making the best numbers you've ever made and just get beat because someone else is better or get crashed or double flat four times or yeah. you know whatever like name you know name your catastrophe <laughs> and and a lot of those things are out of the control and this this gets a little bit into my conversation i've done a previous pod where i talk about people sort of accepting that they're on a trajectory mm-hmm. instead of like climbing a mountain and always kind of trying to keep up or get ahead of other people which i think is a mental model that's very common i i like to kind of talk about an alter model which is more like an orbit or a trajectory you know you're like orbiting the sun and it's kind of an annual thing and and once you're on your trajectory once you've picked your goal you're kind of like you're you're there you're making progress towards it but really there are a lot of we'll say planetary forces that are controlling your speed and your altitude and your arc of how you're orbiting the planet to get to that goal that are well out of our control Mm -hmm. right things like well pandemics (laughs) right and and whether or not your team's going to send you to races or run out of money or there's all these other variables that we just don't have much control over. So oh, no. the more we kind of accept that and just say, I'm going to go all in on this and channel my passion into the sport. That's the expression that's important. The details, I'll let the universe work out some of those details. Is yeah, that- I agree with that. No, I, I, I agree with that 100%. And it's kind of, it's very similar. Like the analogy I almost use is, you, I you think you can look at it as a mountain and like climbing the mountain. But people who've like mountaineer and who climb, there are trails that traverse all the way around the mountain. Like you yep. can go all the way around a mountain to get to the top. Like in a spiral pattern. Yeah. You don't have to take that most direct route because that right. most direct route is definitely the hardest route to get there. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to fall off a cliff doing that than it is to take the more, the longer route and see everything around the mountain. Because again, like, you know. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Everything changes too as you climb and as you go along your, your way in life, you see other beautiful parts of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think something like, I always think of Mount Lemon for this, like Mount Lemon has five geological zones or ecological zones mm-hmm. that you see, and you can spend a day in each zone and you can do it all in one day shooting straight up, or you can spend it in certain areas and slowly discover the beauty within the whole, mm-hmm. whole ecosphere of what you're doing. And I think that's something that I learned pretty early on i feel like just because i was never i never like i i know i I wanted to make it to that world tour and i wanted that recognition and i wanted that meteoric rise but i just never got it and i think a lot of people will just be like oh well like i'm a failure and for me it wasn't i was like well i'm still getting better each year i'm still winning more races each year Mm -hmm. like this is my goal now and like as i'd set more goals 
that allowed me to still like enjoy and appreciate everything I did and then enjoy all the relationships I had along the way too, without feeling like anything was taken from me. I don't, I, I think a lot of guys too, like you think you deserve to be at that level and you deserve certain parts of what you're doing because of your hard work. And that's kind of the, the beauty and the despair of this sport is like, you don't deserve anything. And I think that's just in life in general, like you can always work as hard as you want and hopefully you make it. But if you like set that one goal as like, this is your only target and you don't make it, then you always feel like a bit of a failure. Mm -hmm. And I think mentally that's really hard. And that's why a lot of guys feel jaded after the sport once they leave. Cause they feel like they, you feel like they, they didn't get what they deserved in their heads. Like they did all this hard work and didn't necessarily get paid back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, mm -hmm. I think a lot of guys feel like that. I mean, even I felt like that for a bit and it's just, it's life. Nothing's given to you, but Indeed. you still got to work for it. You still mm -hmm. have to see if you can achieve that. And I think that's where like having those goals you know, even the five-year goal, like you can look back and see like, well, I didn't make, I didn't hit, you know, my ultimate goal or one of, like, I never really, I want to say that I really put it too much in like one, two, three. It was more of like a triangle where I was like, well, if I can hit, this is like the penultimate goal, but there's these two other options that if I, if I get close to one of these, I still feel like that's a success as well. Hmm. So it was always not having the most, uh, I, I want to say I, I'd sometimes have more vague goals to see like, if that was something that I'd want maybe, and if I could achieve that. Yeah. Maybe we could say your goals weren't rigidly fixed. Right. A little yeah. more flexible, a little more pliable, as long as you were racing your bike and succeeding, growing, getting faster, accumulating knowledge and, and achieving higher levels. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. That's the yeah, underlying theme. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can say a similar thing for me, like, I started off really focused on time trialing when I was younger. It just sort of suited my personality and my, my dorkiness a little bit because I was kind of that arrow kit. And, uh, and it, it suited my abilities mentally, but also physically. I wasn't a huge engine, but I was probably more arrow than most people early. So I had success in time trial. So naturally gravitate towards that event because you, you're a little better than that. And then there was this wave where like a lot of other people kind of figured out around 96, 97 how to be a lot more arrow. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I wasn't as good, right? It was like a lot of guys caught up to me. I was like, Ooh, I'm not quite kicking everybody's ass as much as I was. <laughs> but then I, then I really focused on NRC stuff. And you know, this goes right into our conversation about goals. I was like, okay, I've got this. I sort of changed my training, became a little more like a little, a little more explosive. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm good at fast races. I'm good at bunch races. I'm going to focus on crits. And there were a lot of NRC crits back then. So, um, tour La Fleur races like that. Uh, Visalia used to be a huge weekend of racing with NRC crit. And I was making the break a lot of times starting the break and making the break in these NRC level crits, but I didn't have the finishing speed. I was like third, second, yeah. fifth, fourth. And so I was one of the strongest guys in the group, but I, I just didn't, in a one-time sprint I'm fast, but most of the time there's at least one of the guys who's faster than me. That's the way it works out. But what I noticed is. I could do that effort multiple times. And then one day I just had this epiphany. I was like, wait, what race format fits this points racing? You got 12 sprints that are all, you just get the same sprint over and over and over again. I was like, that's gotta be my event. So I shifted gears. So, you know, to our discussion about goals and how they can be pliable. It's like, I start off as a time trial. Then I decide I'm going to focus on crits. 
And then I decide, but I'm, you know, I hit this limitation that I can see pretty quickly. It's like, all right, I could do this for another four or five years. And maybe I pick off one solo win a year or something, or maybe I, you know, this, they see parts and I end up winning in a, you know, out of a small breakaway. Cool. That could be a worthwhile experience, but like, let's engineer a better way to find my niche. And points racing was perfect niche for me. Points racing in Madison are like the most suited events to me on, on, in all of cycling. And people ask me all the time, like, what's your favorite style of racing? You've done so much of it. I've raced cross mountain track and road and I've done it all at like pretty high levels, really. And I don't, I'd be hard pressed to give you an answer. Like on the one hand, I might say track because that was where I had my ultimate success was I went to the Olympics in 2004 for the U S track team. Didn't really achieve that level of success on the road. You know, I wasn't racing at the world tour level on the road, um, or in any other discipline, but I still love, I still have passion and joy all these styles of racing. The level was sort of like, yeah, of course there's a practical side where it's like, okay, it's cool to make money to race my bike for sure. So there's that aspect, but that aside, like in terms of pure joy of the sport, I could have just as much fun and challenge getting, you know, 20th in a really hard mountain bike cross country race as I could winning a points race, oh, different yeah, experience, absolutely. but yeah, I, think, I think that's it. Like, I think I love mountain bike and I absolutely love riding on the mountain bike and just going out and it doesn't matter. Like, dude, I just love like jumping on a bike and riding in town. Like, I think it doesn't mm -hmm. matter what it is that you, I, I just think like in the enjoyment of the bike is universal. Like it, you can narrow it down into what you're good at, but it doesn't mean like that's what you absolutely love. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a good point. Or have to do. Or have to do. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think having those goals, if you set those in like you look at if I think the big thing is looking back at the goals and looking like zooming out again and looking at how that year went, like you saw that, okay, I'm good at these, but I'm not, like it's still not quite what I can do. How can I use this to get somewhere else that I want to get? Right. And I think that's really important too, because then you reassess everything. And I think reassessments have need to happen year after year because otherwise like you're just kind of banging your head against the wall yep. and maybe you make a small dent and you're like, all right, sweet. Mm -hmm. But you know, there might not be a wall if you turn right or it's something that's a lot easier to get through. Like it's yep. just, it's interesting how that is. I think a lot of guys do get fixated on one thing and they think like, that's what I'm good at. And that's what I have to focus on. And you yeah. can get like, eh, like you could be a time trialist, but maybe you're better off climbing or you're better off being in the breakaway. Totally. And like you have a better chance of winning. Like look at, um, Arts was the Belgian national time trialist and our world, hour record holder world, hour record. And yep. like, that's what he was. He was like, I'm a time trialist. And right. then all of a sudden Evan Pohl comes along and mm -hmm. Van Art comes along. And now he's like hardly podiuming on the, on the nationals. And I think he realized like, well, maybe there's other ways that I can win. And now he goes, he went and transitioned into being more of a breakaway specialist and he won his first grand tour race. Yep. Like, there's always ways to pivot and what you're good at and learn mm -hmm. how to, move into something else and set other goals for that. So I thought that was really cool when Camping Arts won this mm -hmm. year in the Giro. And he talked about how like he stopped focusing on time trials so he could be a better, you know, breakaway specialist. That is cool. It's yeah, that's really cool to see that dynamicism in a rider. And and he Camping Arts is a guy who, you know, when he did his hour record in Aguas, he was super dialed, really, really, really arrow. Like I'm arrow but I'm like a glorified hamster engine. Camp is like world tour engine, but 
from the numbers I've seen, he's not anything exceptional at that level. He's, we'd say, average for World Tour, if you can make that statement, you know, <laughs> average for the top 10th of 1%. But, but, and so when you've got guys who are just mutantly engine, engine blessed, like, mm-hmm. you know, like Evan Poole, then, and if assuming that guy gets dialed in his arrow, then all of a sudden you're outclassed and out engined because time trialing is just a function of, I think a lot of people are still confused on this basic concept. TT, like so many people are in Zwift world now, and it's all about watts per kilo. Mm-hmm. Man, watts per kilo is a model of how fast you go racing in a vacuum. That's what it is. It accounts for zero aerodynamics. But I mean, you know this or quite well, or let alone that. tactics, positioning, timing of sprint, all those nuance. But even just in terms of the most basic, like high school level physics perspective of cycling, watts per kilo is when you're climbing at seven miles an hour on a super, super steep hill. That's what watts per kilo is. And that's what most people are focused on. And there's a couple of reasons for that one is Zwift because you see that number constantly displayed, but also two is it's unbelievably easy to do that math. Most riders have no idea what their CDA is, but on a flat road or in a Peloton, it's watts per gram of drag you are pushing into the air or, or how much resistance the air has as you push into the atmosphere, we'll say, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a much, much bigger predictor of outcome. And in a time trial, of course, aside from drafting off motorcycles, cars, and you know other riders, it's, bas- it's watts per kilo, uh, excuse me, it's watts per gram of drag. And, but that's a harder number to know. So people miss that concept. Anyway, that, sorry, random tangent there, but, uh, I think, you know, to your point about Campanerts, cycling is a bit of an unusual sport in relative to other sports because, right. We all just watched a bunch of the Olympics. You look at someone who's doing shot put, there's not a lot of opportunity to find your nuance in shot put, (laughs) Right? Right, right? Like you can either really hurl a shot put or you can't <laughs> and you're probably of a certain build and stature and a certain fiber type or you're not <laughs> but cycling we can have people who are like dominantly slow twitch i mean massively dominantly slow twitch, like literally can barely sprint out of a wet paper bag even at the world tour level i've seen the numbers oh, yeah. like you've got some disastrous sprinters at the world tour level and then we've got people who are absolute lightning rods in a sprint but slow twitch, they're very challenged. And, you know, like, I don't know if you caught that article. I think it was in, I don't remember what publication it was in, but it was recently did an analysis of Marcel Kittle's Tour de France. And they looked at all his time in zones and examined how much harder someone like Kittle is working in a grand tour. Because basically every single time they climb a mountain, even an HC3 or whatever, like he's just basically riding almost as hard as he can all day long in all the mountain stages, right? Whereas some rider who's like second or third tier worker for a climber, they have hard days where they have to pull in the mountains, but also they're so much better than most of the Peloton. You know, if they're 85th percentile in a Tour de France Peloton, that means most of the time in a climb, they're riding pretty hard, but very rarely maximum. Yeah. They, I mean, they almost have recovery days within, exactly. within, yeah. within Grand Tour where yep. sprinters have. Those guys have go all day until the Gruppetto's established. And then even then they've, they're just watching the clock the whole day to make sure they make the time cut. Yeah. So it's a different universe, the recovery right? Recovery days are the flat days that are just like, then they have to sprint. Then they have to still try and win the sprint. So there's, it's, it was, I mean, this is a fact that I was always aware of, but seeing the numbers and the breakdown on that, I'll try and find that article and put it in the show notes if people want to read it. But it was really quite interesting. But to see the numbers and kind of analyze it that way was 
a great way to look at the sport and consider how different riders phenotypes or fiber types really influence their own universe in in a bike race like the tour and that kind of illustrates our point that cycling is a unique in the sense that it's got so many opportunities to find your niche and find your little little tiny sliver of success you know whether that's in a race that super emphasizes bike handling or is very stochastic and explosive versus something that's more long steady climbing versus a time trial and every permutation in between right yeah absolutely i think it's pretty awesome that you have that it's cool with kittle because it's like i i remember too someone was telling me how he initially was a time trialist like i think he was top five in u23 worlds maybe junior worlds mm -hmm. but um he was like a time trialist and then they started testing him and they're like dude you are all fast twitch maybe you should try to sprint <laughs> he started sprinting and winning everything yep. so again it's like that pivot where mm -hmm. it's like you don't really know it's fun to find out what your niche is and what totally. you're good at but again i think if you just set like specific if you think you know what you're good at and then you don't hit those goals it's easy to be like oh i'm not good at this i don't like it anymore it's easier to quit instead of trying to see if maybe you are better at a different avenue of that sport and totally. just yep. continue to progress so. agreed agreed yeah and this Reminds me of my conversation with Paul Check about the evolution of the phases of the athlete, right? And we have really, these are phases of human development, but when you overlay that template onto an athletic path, you get the first phase is the child phase, and then there's the warrior phase. And that's where most athletes occupy most of their time. The warrior is all about going out into the forest and looking under rocks and conquering things and accomplishing stuff, climbing mountains, you know, doing things like having that badge of honor, that a sense of accomplishment. And when we break down that phase, you know, on the one hand, you can, you can look at it from the external eye, the, you might even say the social media eye, right? In 2021, that would be the most sort of obvious expression of that external, that mindset of the external world watching you and judging you. Mm -hmm. And you would, you might say, well, like the, your example, your, your housemate in Tucson, you can imagine, I try not to imagine what goes on in other people's heads, but you can imagine that he might say, he might've been thinking like, well, if I don't make a world tour contract by the time I'm 22, I'm going to be a failure. And that seems like an artificial external standard that he was applying to himself. Maybe it was his perception of self-worth, like that he didn't have a job where he was making money by a certain age, then it was time. He wasn't good enough and he was a failure. So he had to jump off the train and go do something else, go be a lawyer or go do whatever he was going to do. Maybe that view came from his perception of other people publicly. Maybe it was other athletes in the sport. Maybe it was his parents. Maybe it was his dad. That would not be uncommon in Western culture. But when we consider that external validation of our goal and we view our cycling success through that lens, you know, then it's really a harsh sword to be to fall upon, to be judged by, because there's a very high standard and it's competitive sport. So it's ruthless, right? But there's a point also when you can still express the archetype of the warrior, when you can kind of put down that sword per se, the, like in your case, you're obviously a talented sprinter. So there's a point when you say, well, I don't need to enter this criterion on this weekend, or maybe for this month, I'm not going to focus on crits. I'm going to go do something that I'm not as skilled at. I'm going to go do a bunch of long mountain bike races with long climbs. 
And now instead of me being in the top 1% of my Peloton, you know, my peer group, maybe I'm going to be somewhere in the top 5% or maybe 10% or whatever, but I'm okay with that because it's not about me getting an external result. I'm not going to feel bad or feel like I'm a failure. I'm not going to be crushed if I don't get top three in this. I'm just going to go do the best I can and kind of get my ass kicked on purpose for a while. That's what I'm getting at. And, and that's exactly the kind of battle that I had in my own world with racing. It's like, there are times where I'm just going to go do a bunch of mountain bike races and really kind of get smoked a bit, but I can still have enjoyment in that process and, and work towards my own internal goals, have my own internal barometer of what success is. Yeah, right? absolutely. And I think that's what like, and I think that makes you a better athlete in general and probably better at your own, um, like speciality that you're focusing on too. Mm -hmm. Cause it's like, yeah, I, I, it's cool because the sport is so, there's so many different opportunities to succeed in it. Yep. Like, and I think that's, what's really cool. Well, and for you as an athlete, who's done some of that, I think that ultimately parlays into a better ability to teach as a coach. Yeah. Cause, Cause you're, you're looking at different ways to slice up the pie and see, get value out of it and express your passion for the sport. And you understand that the only measure of success for an athlete isn't necessarily being on the podium or getting the flowers or kissing the podium girl or whatever. I don't know. Podium guy. We don't have those podium guys and girls as much anymore, <laughs> which is, which is fine by me. But anyway, as an analogy, so I think that's a powerful tool to have in your, your, your toolbox as a coach. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think it's really not, I mean, I know guys, I have teammates who have never won a bike race and they've been, you know, professional athlete for eight years and it's mm -hmm. just, they're good at what they do and they get better each year and they're happy with what they're doing and they mm -hmm. love it, you know? And I think that's, that's the thing of the sport is the same thing. Like you can have a coach and you can have goals. Sometimes you don't reach those goals, but you still have a wonderful experience along the way and you're able to like still appreciate it and you get better throughout it too. Like, I think you learn, I think that's kind of one of the really neat aspects of sport and especially cycling is like you learn so much about yourself throughout your own experiences. And I think that's where having you a coach helps too, is because that coach can help you learn more about yourself yep. than you think you could know. Yes. You know, I think, I think having my, like, you know, my coach is Justin Peshka and I've been with him since 2013 and he's taught me so much off the bike that I never thought I would. I mean, maybe I would have learned it eventually down the road, but having someone there who can like guide you and tell you and help you and who you trust and believe in, like that's, that goes just as long or just as far as learning it on your own. Like why, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of that same thing of training where it's like train smarter, not harder. Like you don't always have to train super hard. You can learn from other people who have gone down and who's, who know how to take easier routes to get to the same area that you want to go to. So, yep. 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 Agreed. That's one of the beautiful moments in coaching when you can just sort of plant a seed or, you know, highlight something to a rider, ask him a question even sometimes. Um, I, uh, I like to use this method. It's, it's, uh, something I learned in philosophy. I studied some philosophy in college. Go figure. I know it's a shocker. And, um, and there's a method called the Socratic method. It's, it's where he performs something called an Alenkis. And an Alenkis is where you want to make a point to someone, but you don't just tell them the point. You're not like, Hey man, if you ate more on your long ride, 
you would have we're seeing a trend that you're not eating enough on your long ride and in the last hour you're always running on empty you're running on fumes and your energy level just tanks but instead of just saying that to them you start to um, illustrate the point by asking them questions and you use their own answers to illustrate the point right so it's like, remember that ride in April when you told me that you rode with five guys and you stopped and you guys decided randomly to share an entire cherry pie during the ride? Oh, yeah. Do you remember how the last hour you smashed everyone? <laughs> yeah, I felt so good that day. I don't know why. Well, what did you eat in the last ride you did? Uh, you know, I had one gel after 90 minutes. And then, you know, what happened to your energy in the last hour, right? So you can kind of use their own question, their own answers to illustrate the point. And it's a really powerful method because it, it kind of flips the script in a bit in the sense that you're not really trying to convince someone of your opinion or what you see. You're letting them draw that conclusion on their own, but you're guiding them. You're planting those seeds. You're, you're, you're kind of maybe giving them a gentle shove in that direction and letting them figure it out. Yeah, you're teaching them. You're teaching them. It doesn't always work. You know, it's human nature. Sometimes it's like, yeah, whatever, man. I'm not eating a pie anymore. It makes me fat or whatever. <laughs> okay, it's human nature. Sometimes we just have to, learn lessons the hard way, right? Uh, mm, raising my hand right now. <laughs> Plenty of hard lessons learned. But. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's kind of, you have to be open to it. You have to be willing to uh, listen to others and be mm. willing to try other things. So I think that's, it's really important. And I love it. I think that's one of the fun things. I think I'm going to really enjoy coaching. It was actually one of those things where um, before I was even racing, like I wanted my, my family's, my mom was a uh, school teacher for 32 years. My sister's in education. Okay. Um, I have a lot of family who's in education. And I remember one of the most like profound people that affected my life really was my coach from high school, my high school track coach, Mark Oligoski. Interesting. <laughs> and I remember I wanted to like, I wanted to be him later on. I was like, I want to actually be a teacher and coach track and field and like, work cool. with kids even in high school because i was like man he was he made such an impact on me at such a young age that i just like and i still remember him and still like appreciate everything that he taught us mm -hmm. in, in high school um so it was one of those things where it's like I, it's something that i've always wanted to pursue and i think that's something that i really enjoy doing because it's you can get so much satisfaction out of not just your own results, but watching other people grow too. Yeah. I think it's something that's really uh, rewarding for coaches. So Isn't I'm it? looking forward to it. Yep. Yep. That's interesting. I have a, uh, you and I have a parallel in that respect. I was a wrestler in high school for two years. I was terrible at it. <laughs> terrible. Um, joined my freshman year in Broomfield High School and was the worst guy on the team by good margin, just relentless getting my ass beat like over and over again. But there was something in me that wouldn't, I wouldn't let myself quit. It was like, I don't know if it was pride. I don't know if it was just stubbornness. I'm not sure what it was. It was somehow I had this like, this instinct that I had to finish that season as a wrestler. And then once that happened, then sophomore year, I was like, I have to do this again. And by the time I was finished with the two years at wrestling, I changed high schools midway through. So that gave me my out. <laughs> And then I also discovered bike racing for my junior year. So then I was like, I'm all in on this. But the things that I got from it were one, it taught me how to tumble, which if you're a bike racer and you're doing criteriums, falling off a bike, that's huge. So I'm quite certain it saved me many, many broken bones because I kind of learned to ball up into a roly poly. So you're going down and there's a point where it's point of no return. You just turn into a little ball and...
Oh, yeah. So that was a that was a blessing that I had no way of seeing, right? But then the other interesting part was it taught me perseverance because just getting your teeth kicked in all the time, it just taught me how to be tenacious, right? And after a very, very long period of time, I slowly started to garner respect from all my teammates because they could see me just getting smoked. <laughs> and they were like, this kid just doesn't quit. Like, what's the deal? So, so that gave me a little bit of self-confidence. But the parallel part is really the coach. The head coach of our team was Coach Johnson. And this guy blew my mind. And he also planted that seed probably for me to want to teach other people because he really shifted my paradigm. I mean, this is like the 80s, man. I was eating like Tostino's frozen pizzas and po toaster strudel for breakfast. I'm still repairing my gut to this day for that like decade of shit food. But, you know, we didn't know any better back then, or at least I didn't. But Coach Johnson did. And he was like, he, I remember him telling me like, yeah, you guys, you shouldn't eat processed food. And I had, I Googled didn't exist back then. So I was like, what the hell is processed food? Like, like I didn't even know have, what that concept you meant. Have, you don't even have the science then to like understand no it. No idea. Just it's just what you're fed and what was at the store? What was at Safeway, you know, or whatever. And I, I just blew my, you know, he was like, have an apple. Don't eat a, you know, a pop tart. I was like, I don't understand what this guy's talking about, but it seems like there's something to this. And he planted all those seeds. He, he kind of changed my paradigm of how to look at sport and how to push myself and think about things like diet and how that impacted my performance as an athlete and all these other seeds he planted. And he was definitely shifted my perspective a few degrees. One of those really influential, you know, mentors at a young age. So that's cool to hear your track coach did a similar thing for you. I think these are the people who ultimately led us or shifted our our trajectory a bit and led us probably to the path where we are today to be coaches. Don't you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. I still think about that a lot because I'm yeah. just like, he really had a huge, a profound effect. Cause I was like, I was a pretty cocky runner. Like I was good, but I was, I didn't train. I didn't like put the effort in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was the opposite where he trained a lot and he, he was also a really good runner and ran in college. I think he held the, 800 record for a really long time and he really like pushed me to train and taught me how to like what it meant to actually put in work and how much more rewarding it is when you win off mm -hmm. of training than it is off of just like pure talent and I think that was something that really got me a long ways in the sport because it is it's a lot of training it's a lot of learning and I think he was one of those people who always pushed me to learn and continue to learn how to like succeed because it isn't something that you pick up right away. It's something that takes, even like if you have the most talent in the world, you still have so much to learn in the sport. Yeah. So yeah. it's been fun. It's been, yeah, he's been really, really profound in my uh, life decisions, which is kind of crazy to think like a stupid 17 year old back then, like how much that makes an effect and how it, uh, Yep. change changing life, but it's pretty cool. I think it's something that's really, really rewarding. Uh, I think the saying that comes to mind there is, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, right? Yeah. 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 So that's cool. Cool. So share with our audience, uh, you know, a lesson that you've learned from your cycling coach, Justin, that you've been working with for several years. Is there something that comes to mind there? Good or bad? Yeah. I mean, Justin's the one thing and you kind of mentioned it. The one thing that Justin really helped me with was learning how to control my emotions racing. Like he's very even keel. He's very, he's very calm. He was, he never pushed me 
if I didn't ride, he was one of those guys is like, if I didn't ride for a week, he wouldn't, he wouldn't really push me much. He'd be like, all right, well, that's your decision not to ride, but don't expect to get results if you're not putting in the work. He's like, this is, it's on you to do this. And I think that was a lesson that I learned pretty early on from him was that it's like, you know, he was, he'd look at everything, he'd analyze everything. He gave me great workouts, but if I didn't do it, he wasn't one of those coaches who were just like on me for it. It was more like, this is on you. And that was something that I needed because I needed to learn how to build my own self-discipline and dedication towards, towards the sport, which I had not really done in running. And I learned early on, like that was probably my weakness running was that I didn't try enough and I didn't create a good work ethic. And so that was something that came into cycling that I really wanted to improve on. And the other thing with him was like, he taught me how to harness the emotions of racing. Like when I first started, I was always, I thought I had that runner's mentality where it's just like, you're the strongest person out there. You just ride as hard as you can. And it's the last man standing who's going to win. Right. And so I use that all the time. I was just like a dumbass and attack and attack and attack. And then I get dropped and what the hell happened. <laughs> uh, so he like, he really taught me how to like stay calm. And he taught me that a lot of guys on elbows taught me that with Heath Blackgrove, Eric Marcotte, mm -hmm. uh, Sean Sullivan, a lot yep. of guys were there to like harness my like young energy and put it in towards when it mattered. And they taught me how to use that. But Justin was someone who was really good at that. It was just like, taught me how to keep calm. I mean, the biggest thing with him was just like, he was someone, and he still is someone that I can talk to really about anything. I think a lot of time coaching ends up being not just about the performance on the bike and the training, but you end up becoming more of like a psychologist, psychiatrist for your clients too. Yeah. And you're trying to help them harness everything and, figure out where they can improve and what's going on with their life that, you know, you, you can, cause you kind of see them from like a crystal ball of where their lives are and what they're doing. And you have this unique perspective where when you're working with them, you can see how they're doing physically, mentally. And if they, if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, usually that is something that has to do with their mental aspect or their life. And so, you know, he really was someone there that I could just come to with my, with anything and he would help me with it. And uh, anytime that I had like, you know, I was hitting a wall, he'd figure out ways that we could walk around that wall, get around it and utilize um, what I had to make a better situation. So, hmm. yeah. That's a great point, I think it's easy for people to think uh, superficially about coaching as someone who writes workouts for their athletes and looks at power files. And that's, that's part of coaching, but really I would, I think we need to, I think we need to redefine the terminology in our sport. Honestly, I think someone who strictly looks at files and thinks about athletic load is really more of a trainer than a coach. A coach right. is someone who looks holistically at the athlete and like you said, you know, with Justin understands you as a human, he's got, you guys have a long standing relationship. He understands your, the context of your life. You know, you have pets, you have family, you have kids, you don't have kids. Like you, you just moved from one house to another, you know, you change teams. Maybe it's the end of the year. You don't have a contract yet. All those things that every cyclist goes through, right? Those stresses that impact your racing in different ways. And 
And the reality is this, as coaches, really what we're trying to do is we're guiding someone's athletic journey, but that athletic journey is an expression of everything that they are as a person. All their stress, all their love, all their wounds, their childhood wounds that are playing out in adult life, right? I mean, really when you start to dig down to it, you could, you could look at everybody as just adults who are trying to figure out their childhood wounds, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so how is, how is that, how are the things that we experienced as kids playing out in the world? And, and why are we on this athletic journey is because we're trying to flog those demons or exercise, exercise those demons, or are we trying to run from them? Or are we trying to just figure them out or, or what, um, if something that's really been highlighted to me from some people that I've been studying recently is that this is a little bit of a sad fact when you think about it, but it's also very illustrative. Anyone who achieves something really at a very, very high level, whether it's someone who owns, you know, 15 corporations or makes $40 billion or uh, starts a company from scratch and spends 20 years building it on their own or, or wins uh, a pro national championship or wins a world tour race. It almost universally, people who are driven to that extreme are driven out of trauma. What causes drive? Trauma causes drive. I mean, I hate to use this example, but it's so obvious. Look at Lance, you know, like so angry at his dad and out to prove to the world, you know, all the things that he decided he had to prove because his dad was an a-hole. Mm -hmm. And look what he did with it. He did all these, this amazing journey of accomplishment and deceit and lies and doping and all the things that went along with it, the foundation, this huge mess that he made, but all of it was to an extreme level. And that was born out of trauma. And you can see that, that play out over and over again. So yeah. when you see athletes succeeding at that high level or anyone succeeding at a high level, it's like, you got to ultimately to understand the root of that drive. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think, yeah, you're, you're missing something. There's, there's a part of you that's, that's missing something. You're seeking something. You're seeking something. You're seeking yeah. what you're missing. You're trying to find that, that missing puzzle piece. I think that's true a lot of the time. Yeah. 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 And I think that can really, think can lead to greatness. It, it can lead to great success and great sorrow all in the same time. Like I, it's really hard to just, it's hard to find like your, who you are. I think that's what something we're always trying to strive for as individuals. And we never, never yeah. know because we're constantly evolving and constantly figuring it out through everything else that's going on around us. We don't live in a vacuum. We have an entire world going around. And I think it's easy for us to forget that it's like we live in a world with 7 billion other people. You know, we all live in our own little bubbles. Mm -hmm. It's our own little creation, but having someone else there to can actually help you makes a huge impact. And I think that's why you see places or companies like BetterHelp and all these other, I think we're, we're coming to a point now in our society where it's becoming more acceptable to use, to, to ask questions and ask for help. And I think that was one thing that really brought me to the EF thing was that holistic approach to cycling and to coaching. Mm -hmm. It's because, you know, you guys really, we want to stress communication on both ends. And yeah. I think that's something that we're missing now right now in in cycling and just in the world in general you know true communication is it's different you know, than an instagram post right yeah exactly yeah. yeah and i think for me that's like like i i won't even get into instagram and social media and stuff <laughs> there's benefits and stuff that i 
enjoy and also really hate. Right. But in 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 the grand scheme of things, we're we're missing us as a culture. We're missing parts of that connection, and definitely the pandemic has made it worse. Yeah. Um, and I think the communication aspect of it is probably one of the biggest, most influential parts of our lives if we utilize it. And I think mm-hmm. that's where, like the EF coaching, I think having a coach in general can really help you expand and grow. Because I I know hundred percent. I would not have the success I've had. I would not be living the life that I've had. And I wouldn't have the mindset that I have now without the help of Justin, you know, my high school coach, all the mentors that I've had along the way who have like seen potential in me, but knew that there was work that needed to be done. All those guys have helped form where I'm at now. All all my teammates, directors, everything. It's a an accumulation of um, support that's gotten me where I'm at, but a lot of people don't have that, or a lot of people are maybe too afraid to seek it and don't really know how to find it. So Mm -hmm. I think that's something that really, I think this EF coaching can help with. And I think it's cool to see all the other coaches that are on board too, because I think a lot of us have gone through the same hardships and struggles and we understand how to balance everything pretty Mm -hmm. well. Um, so yeah, it's, well, maybe I'm rambling a little bit, but no, that's great. Those are great points. I yeah, agree. I think it's really beneficial. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got other stuff going on today, so yeah, I got to We're leaving soon to go to Pittsburgh. For, right on. To see some family. So okay, got 15 minutes to pack, and then I'm out the door. All right. Well, we'll let you go then. That's uh, you're a skilled packer like I am. I know you can get oh, your man, bug out back going up. fast, but <laughs> still. <laughs> my wife likes to laugh at me for that. I'm like, okay, I got to pack. I got eight minutes. And she's just rolling her eyes at me going. I know. I know. Tori's like, have you packed it? No. Like, what are you going to pack? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I'll I got this. <laughs> I just throw everything in the bag and go. So it's easy. Easy. So, yep. Yeah. Well, cool. Goby. Thanks, man. This was really fun. Thank you. Um, before you go, tell people where we can, they can find out more about you. Obviously they can go to teamefcoaching.com and look at your profile there and find out information, but what other resources do we have for people to find out more about, about Travis? Yeah. Teamef.com. Uh, Travis underscore McCabe is my Instagram. Okay. Not really on Twitter anymore. I do still have it. Um, but also Facebook, you can reach out to me at Travis McCabe. Uh, granted, if you can find me out of the millions of other hundreds of other Travis McCabe's, I think you'll be able to, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I think, I think sending me an email, sending me reaching out on Facebook and Instagram, I, I do love getting, uh, a lot of direct messages and I usually respond to everyone. So if people who are really interested, I'd say go to the website, check it out, see the coaches that we have and any questions you have, feel free to ask because, Mm-hmm. I want to, I'm really excited for this next chapter. That's for sure. Cool. Outstanding. All right. Well, thanks very much. Yeah. And, thanks, Kobe. Have fun. a great trip up to Pittsburgh. Enjoy the family time. Okay. All right. See you cool. Later. I'll talk to you later. Okay. okay. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So, Don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Self-evident. Gratitude.